Mark chapter 2, verse 23. We're going to go to verse 6 of chapter, uh, chapter 3. So Mark chapter 2, and then we'll read to chapter, chapter 3. So start at verse 23, and then we'll pray. Verse 23. And one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them in anger and grieved at their madness of heart and and their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how he might, how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that we would see the life and the newness and the insane love of Christ through your word by the power of your spirit, God. I ask, God, that you would manifest your, yourself, your presence, your word to everyone here, that you would be set as so beautiful against religiosity and ritual and regulations, Lord, that you would free people to love and to worship you and to serve the city and love the city, God, that you would free our hearts from those religious things that we hold on to, God. Free our hearts from those ideas those idolatrous things that we, that we cling to, God. Would you deliver us from these things? And I pray, God, that you would give us spiritual ears and hearts that are conducive for the seed of your word to take root this morning. Lord, we really want to see you, God. I pray that you would radically transform our hearts. I, every week, I'm just blown away that you can use just these words that sometimes don't make any sense. But it's your spirit, God. I submit my mind and my mouth and my heart to you, and I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. We need you, Lord. By the power of your name, we pray these things. Amen. So last week, last week in, um, in the book of Mark, we looked at the radical newness of Christ, the radical newness of Christ, the radical newness that Jesus brought in. And over the course of our time in Mark, what we've been calling this newness, this radical newness, is the inbreaking kingdom of God, that God has broken into our time and space and brought in the kingdom. This is a kingdom that was promised, a kingdom that was talked about, a kingdom that was anticipated when God would break into humanity and begin a process of making all things new. Now, a question that might come up, though, when I say God was bringing in his kingdom, God was breaking into our time and space, a question that might come up is wasn't God always involved in humanity and always near people from the very beginning? I mean, we've read parts of the Old Testament where God is with his people. Isn't it always God was always with his people? What is different now? I would say, yes, God has always been with his people. We are not deists. 
that believe God started everything and now it's hands off and the, as the world spins out of control. We don't believe that. But there was this hope that the people of God had. There was this specific hope where God would right every wrong and, and one day remove all the evil from the world and inaugurate a new unprecedented age of blessings and prosperity and joy. This is the hope that they live for. This was the hope that the Jewish people lived for, and this day was realized in Jesus. So it meant something eschatological, bringing in the end, the beginning of the end of all things, even apocalyptic, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, or Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It meant that God was coming near and bringing his kingdom, his rule, his nearness, his newness to humanity. God was breaking in. Behold, time is fulfilled. Time is at hand. God is breaking in now. Repent and believe in the gospel. The way that Jesus described this newness to the Pharisees last week was by calling it new wine. He said, there is now this new wine, and this new wine couldn't be kept in old wineskins. He said, new wine needs new wineskins. When you put a new vintage in a skin or barrels, it ferments and it expands and it needs pliable skin to stretch with it. If you put new wine in old wineskins, old, worn out, dry, crusty wineskins, it will ferment, expand, and burst. And you will lose the new wine and you will lose the old wineskin. Everything is lost and everyone's sad. And so Jesus says, You have to get rid of the old wineskin. You need a new wineskin because I'm pouring in a new wine. And here was the point of last week, and this will help us this week. Old and new cannot be mixed together. Old and new cannot be mixed together. Jesus and religion, and this is the jump that we made last week, Jesus and religion don't go together. You can't bring Jesus and religion to the same place. They don't play well together. Jesus comes in and religion hates him. Jesus comes in and he breaks every structure. He breaks out of Jerusalem, out of the temple. God is on the loose and he's healing everybody. He's having meals with people that he should not have meals with. He's forgiving people outside of the confines of, of, of the temple. And the Pharisees and the scribes and everybody's watching him going, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? And this is what Jesus does And when, when they get angry at him. We've seen this is uh, in chapter 2 in the, verse of, in the beginning of chapter 3. This is the, the conflict part of the book of Mark. There's five conflict narratives here. We're, we're going to finish the last two today. And everyone is like, what are you doing? You can't be doing this. You can't be saying things like this. In the two episodes that we'll see today, there is yet another clash, another conflict. This time, the conflict surrounds the Sabbath. The Sabbath. And this is how we'll look at it today. The real intent of the Sabbath, the reality of religion, and the realization of life. So we see the, the, what we'll learn is the real intent of the Sabbath, what the, the, the real intention of the Sabbath was, the reality of religion, that's like this undercurrent here in these two episodes, and the realization of life. Jesus comes in and he brings a realization of real true life. So first, the, the real intent of the Sabbath. Here Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. And we don't know how far they walked because that brings in a whole, that plays into it as well. If they walk further than a certain distance, they were also breaking the Sabbath. But they're walking. Him and his disciples are walking on Sabbath. 
And they're walking through the grain fields, and they're pulling heads of grain off, off, these, off the stalk and then rubbing it in their hands and putting it in their mouth and eating it. So they were eating. And our text says that the Pharisees were watching Jesus and his disciples do this. And in verse 24, it says, this is what they said to Jesus. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Look at what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're plucking heads of grain. They're walking and they're eating. They're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. At this point in the story of the Bible, the religious leaders of the day made Sabbath. Now, Sabbath or Shabbat started on Friday night, sunset Friday, and lasted all the way through sunset on Saturday. They made that day of prescribed, commanded, God-given rest into something it was never intended to be. They had made Sabbath into something that God never intended it to be. Look at the law in Exodus chapter 20. It's on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you're a fast Bible flipper. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. This is the Ten Commandments in the law of God. It says, and this is probably something that you've memorized as a kid if you grew up in church or you know as, as somebody that probably frequents church. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do, not, and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner with guests, everybody. No one works. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the intent of the Sabbath was this God-given rest, restoration, rooted in creation and redemption. So it was this God-given rest. God said, rest. Let the land rest. Let your livestock rest. rest. Let your slaves rest. Let everyone, your servants rest. Let everyone rest and be restored. And it was rooted in creation. Actually, this is the only commandment rooted in the creation narrative. See, God created for six days. God created and made and thought for six days, and then on the seventh day, he just let everything be. He created it, he set it in motion, and then on the sixth, on the seventh day, he didn't stop because he was tired. He's like, oh, I'm so tired from creating the universe and the earth. I'm, I need to rest, okay? I need to put my legs up, I need to watch some TV, I need to kick back. No, he let everything else rest. He let everything else just be and grow and move and spin and do what they do, what he created it to do. He stopped and let everything else be. Not only that, it was rooted in redemption. Because look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Remember that you were a slave, and God does this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You were a slave. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded that you keep the Sabbath day. It was rooted. The Sabbath was also a day to remember and reflect on what God had done in creating them and saving them and redeeming them. So it was a day to rest and celebrate. I was, I've been in Israel during Shabbat. As soon as the sun goes down on Friday, it is the funnest thing ever. Dinner comes out. It's awesome. It's fun. There's this one guy. We were at this uh, kibbutz in, in Israel, and this one, he, he reminded me of uh, maybe what Moses would have been like. This older man, beard, telling stories, all these kids on his lap, just telling all these wonderful Old Testament stories, enjoying a glass of wine, and I'm like, this is, this is awesome. This is what Sabbath is supposed to be like. 
And they were to do this. They were to stop, remember, get restored, remember all the good things that God has done in saving them and redeeming them to do all these things on the Sabbath. That's what they were supposed to do. But when the theologians of this day, of Jesus' day, examined the law, what they picked up on was not the rest part. They picked up on the thou shalt not work part. They picked up on the negative part of the law. They focused all their efforts and all their resources on this negative part and asked the question, what exactly is involved in working? And how do we not work? How can we make sure that we never work on the Sabbath? So rest was thrown out, and how do we not work? How do we put a hedge around us so we never get close to breaking the law? But ironically, in these two episodes, we see that by doing this, by saying all these hedges are around us so we never break the law, they are also keeping themselves from obeying the essence of the command. They never rest. They never restore. Jesus is walking through the grain fields, eating, restoring his disciples as they eat. Jesus will heal a man with a withered hand, restoring his hand. And the Pharisees are so angry at Jesus for doing this. The Pharisees and the other religious sects at the time, they made all these rules, and, and, and they had actually 39 forbidden activities on the Sabbath, and they were all very intricate. You had 39 forbidden, you couldn't do these 39 things, and number three was no reaping. You could not reap. Okay, but that was number three, but now see all these other questions come up. Now define reaping. John Deere tractor, your sickle, your hand, what is reaping? And they, and they had all these laws and all these regulations so that so when they saw Jesus picking these heads of grain and going, pick, rub, and eat, they went, reaper. <laughs> he's reaping. He's breaking the law. He's going to hell. And that's what they saw, and that's all they saw. They were blinded by their law. And these Pharisees lost the essence and the intent of the Sabbath law, which, by the way, is still a very vital the Sabbath is very vital, very important part of a follower of God, especially in such a transient, busy city like this. We'll get to that in a second. But in rabbinic fashion, this is the way Jesus came back. Because you can't do that. You can't, you can't eat grain on the Sabbath. What are you thinking? And in, in very sly rabbinic fashion, Jesus shares the story of David eating the bread of the presence in the tabernacle in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And he brings them to David, King David. Remember when he was, he said, remember when he was on his, the run for his life and he was being pursued by Saul and they wanted to kill him and he was starving and he went into the, 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 the tabernacle and he went to eat bread that only the priest could eat. And he ate. And remember how God never condemned him for doing that? And thus, what Jesus was saying was this. Human need trumps ritual requirement. Human need trumps ritual requirement. But not only that, Jesus is saying that they have forgotten the very purpose and the very essence of the Sabbath. You have lost what the Sabbath really means. Look at verse 27 and 28. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here is God didn't create the Sabbath and think, you know what? I need people to obey and observe the Sabbath. You know what? I'll make man. And I'll make man so that he can observe my Sabbath law. That's not what God did. He created man first, and he gave man the Sabbath to rest and be restored. The Sabbath was given to man to meet our deep need of rest and restoration 
not to restrict our life and reduce us to rule-keeping robots. It was given to us to rest. Do you know that you need rest? Not just nightly rest, which sometimes we barely get, but a day of rest, a day of letting, of not being busy, of sitting and waiting on God, a day of relaxation, a day of rest. The reason why the essence of this law is still to be obeyed by everyone today, because look what it says there. The law was given, the Sabbath was given to man. It wasn't given to Christians. It wasn't given to, to Jews. It was given to man. It was given to everybody. The reason why we can't get rid of the Sabbath is because it's rooted in creation. Now, we don't have to be legalistic about it, but we need rest because it's rooted in creation. There's something called a trajectory hermeneutic. And if you know what this means, then you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, just act like you do. It's when there is an interpretation of a law and it takes on a trajectory. And there is a trajectory in this law, but the trajectory must be anchored by some sort of gravity, always. I believe in trajectory hermeneutics. However, I think there needs to be gravity. And the gravity is always creation. Always. God created the Sabbath and he modeled it after creation. We are to have the Sabbath law, not in a way that is binding, not in a way that is religious, but in a way that's rooted in creation, where we stop and we rest, where we, God created for six days and then let everything just be. We were created in the image of God. And you know what? We affirm creativity. We affirm art and startup companies and innovation and medicine and schooling, but we also affirm the fact that we need to unplug from creating and recreate. We need to unplug from creating for a day or a time or a season or something, and we need rest. We need a time to unplug and disconnect from our work, to rest and to walk and to eat with Jesus and his people. This is rest for our souls. And this is why Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That is, he is the one who presides over great Sab- the great Sabbath. He is like the king of rest and the only one who can give you real rest, true rest. You guys know you guys could take a day off but be more tired. If you've ever taken a vacation, you're more tired when you come home than when you leave. There is a deep rest, and Jesus says, I am that deep rest. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at this quote, it's on the screen. Six days a week, we leave, live under the tyranny of things, of space. On the, uh, uh, on the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to the holiness of time. It's a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. There needs, a, there needs to be a time where we do this, where we unplug and we rest in God. That's the real intent of the Sabbath. But what we see here from the perspective of the Pharisees, we also see the reality of religion because religion smothers the Sabbath to where no one can breathe anymore because what happens is the Sabbath law becomes about religion and regulation, not about recreation and renewal. Look at chapter 3, verses 1. Again, he entered the synagogue. Jesus enters the synagogue, and it's Sabbath. And there was a man with this withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. 
And he said to them, the, the, the Pharisees watching him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller writes this about this subject of religion. It's widely believed that one of the main barriers to world peace is religion, and especially the major traditional religions with their exclusive claims to superiority. Though I am a Christian minister, I agree with this. Religion, generally speaking, tends to create a slippery slope in the human heart. Religion, each religion informs its followers that they have the truth, and this naturally leads them to feel superior to those with differing beliefs. Also, a religion tells its followers that they are saved and connected to God by devoutly or devotedly performing that truth. This moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life. Therefore, it is easy for one's religious group to stereotype and caricature, caricature other ones. Once this situation exists, it can easily spiral down into mar marginalization of others or even to active oppression, abuse, or violence against them. What are they both saying? Look at our story. The religious leaders of God's religion, let's just call it what it is, it, they were, they were, it was Judaism, it was God's founded religion. They were so blinded with their own law and have drifted so far from its intended meaning that they were looking to accuse Jesus and to completely and cheerfully plot his death, all in the name of piety and protecting their power. Religion is dangerous. And do you see the irony? Mark, remember we've talked about this a lot if you've been around. Mark writes with this really sharp, funny irony. The irony shines like a spotlight on the futility and the absolute absurdity of religion. These judgmental Pharisees were accusing Jesus of working on the Sabbath by making a man whole, by healing him. That's work. Then, because of their anger, they leave on the Sabbath and plot a man's death. Plotting death is work and murder, people. <laughs> it's like two of the commandments broken. They break two of them, and Jesus supposedly breaks one of them. And this is the irony in Mark. Mark's like, look at Jesus healing, restoring. They're like, work, you know what, let's go. Let's go have a meeting. Let's walk further than we should. Let's plot this man's death. This is, this is the apex, a shining light on the absurdity of religion. The reality of religion is this. At its core, religion is simply a form of self-righteousness. I'm better because I believe this, or I'm better because I believe this way. And anyone who does not fall in line is an enemy. If you think Christianity and religion are the same thing, you're wrong. If, you were, if you're here and you heard about this church or whatever, and you're like, oh, well, I'll check it out, and you think some way that, that Christianity and religion are the same thing, you're wrong. I want to apologize and repent on behalf of Christians who behave like religion and Christianity are the same thing. But followers of Jesus aren't better or superior to anyone 
at all. We, like everyone, like every Christian, are in sheer need of grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. That's what we need. Every single person that walks through this door needs the, the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. We're no better. And actually, it absolutely humbles us because we realize we need Jesus. Christianity is not a religion. Look at the last verse in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him. The Herodians. These Pharisees are getting with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? They were supporters of Herod Antipas. They were supporters of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded. They were enemies of the Pharisees. They were ungodly men. You can consider the Herodians the liberal left. And the Pharisees were the righteous and conservative right. They were on opposite sides of the spectrum. You have the conservative Pharisees that held to the, 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 the law and everything, and you had these liberal Herodians that just drank and partied, and he partied so hard one night, Herod did, he partied so hard one night, he promised a girl, I'll give you anything you want. That's how hard he partied. That's, some, that's crazy party. And the girl goes, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He's like, do it. That's awesome. Or whatever. So you have this liberal people over here and these super conservative people over here. However, they both realized they need to get rid of Jesus. See how Jesus is neither the traditional moral conservative nor is he the universal liberal self-expressionist? He's neither. The gospel is neither moralism or relativism. Jesus, and thus Christianity, is not conservative or liberal. It's neither religion nor irreligion. This is why Peter Bolt said this, and we quoted this last week. The appropriate response to Jesus is not more religion, nor is it the construction of a new religion. The proper response to Jesus is something completely non-religious. It's faith. You can't put Jesus in any category. He's totally other. D.A. Carson, a wonderful um, theologian, says that he is the third position. The third position. He's totally other. So if you're a Christian, and now you live in San Francisco, if you're a Christian and you move to the Bay Area and think, well, now I have to be more liberal, repent. <laughs> Just repent. However, if you are born and raised in San Francisco, you've lived here for years, and now you're just starting to follow Jesus, and you think now you have to become more religious, stop. We need faith. That's what we need. We need faith in Jesus and his word and humility as we live lives of faith in the context of this city. With Jesus comes the abolition of religion. Jesus totally abolishes religion. This is why he says, I am the Lord even of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath, and he puts an end to regulation. He puts an end to religion by embodying its meaning. And we learn finally that this, that with Jesus comes the realization of life. Jesus brings life. Look at this man with the withered hand. He's caught in between religion and Jesus. He's in the middle. He's in the synagogue. He's in a, he's in a setting kind of like this. And he comes in with a withered hand. I've always like, had this mental picture of this guy whenever I read this story. He comes into the, the synagogue. He sits down with his cold, dead, withered hand. 
and he sees Jesus walk in with his disciples, and he sees these Pharisees walk in as well, and they're on opposite sides of the room, and he can just by looking, and he's watching these Pharisees look at Jesus with these just locked, judgmental eyes on Jesus. And he's like caught in the middle. He's probably like looking back and forth going, what is going on here? Jesus is standing there, and the Pharisees are standing there just looking at Jesus, and Jesus is looking around, and this withered man is just going, what? And he's looking back and forth, and all of a sudden Jesus goes, you, come here. This guy's just probably horrified. If you had a withered hand, the last place you'd want to be is probably up in front of everybody, with everybody watching you, being an example. Jesus calls this man forward. And this is where I pictured this man's face, in utter horror. And remember the subtext of the last chapter, that Jesus can read hearts. Remember the paralytic? He read the hearts of of the Pharisees. He read the heart of the paralytic. There's this whole subtext where Jesus can read hearts. He read this man's heart. He knew the Pharisees. When this man was standing up next to Jesus, he was standing up next to Jesus with this cold, withered hand, just like this. I don't know how he was holding it, probably trying to hide it or something. And he's standing right next to Jesus, and these Pharisees were looking at him, and were thinking, like, you better not. You better not. You better not. Now, it's funny that they didn't question that Jesus can heal this man by this point. They know Jesus can do anything. So they know. They're like, he's going to heal him. I know it. You better not, though. And, and he's there, and he's holding his hand. Now, Jesus looks at the crowd, and he says, is it lawful, and again, this man with his hand is still standing next to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the, their hardness of heart. Listen, it's the Sabbath, the God-given day of rest and restoration, and being the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus cannot just sit around. He cannot but help being, bring about the true meaning of the Sabbath as you see this man with his withered hand. He sees it and he's like, what's the point of the Sabbath? Restoration. I have to do something about this man's hand. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He brings about its intended meaning. This man is not just some pawn. Jesus pulls him up in front of everybody because it's Sabbath, and he cannot but help be moved by this guy's situation. He's compassionate. We learned that already in this book. So he asks, what's the intent of the Sabbath? To do good or harm, life or death? To the Pharisees, the intent of the Sabbath was observance. The intent of the Sabbath is observant. You have to observe the Sabbath, the Sabbath, just to show up and don't break any laws. To Jesus, it was way more messy than that. It's about life. It's about doing good. It's about restoration. It's about deep rest. See, these Pharisees had become like people who learn art theory but never create a piece of art. That what they know boxes them in and they become bitter critics. That's it. They become like people who learn to read sheet music and play correct notes but never make music. The whole point of the Sabbath was to free people to rest and be restored, not to hem them in and to make them just stay in your your current situation. Stay withered. Stay bitter. That's not the intent of the Sabbath. And this is what angers Jesus, and it grieves him. It says that their hearts, 
Jesus says that their hearts, he was grieved because their hearts had become hard, or their heart had become shriveled and dried up like the man's hand. It's exactly the connection. Their heart was like this man's hand. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He told this man with this withered hand, stretch out your hand. And as that man with the withered hand stood next to Jesus and everyone's eyes were on his poor little hand, he had a decision to make. I mean, at that point, everyone's looking at his hand, right? Stretch out your hand, everybody's like looking at his hand. What is he going to do with his hand? And he had a decision to make. He could do nothing and save himself the humiliation and just say, hey, listen, I don't want to get involved here. I don't want to get caught up in all your guys' arguments and all your mess. I'm just going to leave. But if he did that, he would be just like the Pharisees who never trust in the word of Jesus. Or he could take the risk of faith and act on the command of Jesus. And it says he stretched it out and it was restored. Now, again, I imagine his face, what he looked at when he looked at his brand new hand. When it popped out and he was like, I, I, don't, I don't know, his face, I cannot wait to, I don't know, like I've, I've said before, I don't, in heaven, I don't know if you get to, like reel to reel of old things that happened. Like, I want to see his face. I want to see his reaction when he saw his hand for the first time. I want to see that. And he sees his hand, and it's stretched out, and it's restored. And again, Mark describes faith without ever using the word. It's trust in the word of Christ, not in religious structure. It's public risk not private wager. And what's interesting in this episode is, is where Jesus jumps. Because when the man with the withered hand is standing in front, Jesus asks two questions. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? That makes sense. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal this man or not? But then he makes this really crazy jump. To save life or to kill? That's too far. This man wasn't going to die if his hand was not healed. The Pharisees were like, dude, if you just wait four hours, you can heal the man. Just don't do it right now. He's not going to die. There was actually uh, 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 a caveat in the law that said, well, if, if, if somebody's dying on Sabbath, you can save their life. And this man wasn't dying. Jesus could have waited four or five hours and healed him after the Sabbath was over. Why did he do this? The second part of the question was no, long, no longer refers to the disabled man. The second part of the question refers to Jesus. If Jesus heals this man's little hand, he would put into motion the process that will end his own life. If Jesus healed this little man's hand, he would go to the cross. And this is one of the most important truths in all of the gospel. The gospel, the love, mercy, forgiveness, healing, restoration, and reconciliation of Jesus is free but it's costly. All this man had to do was stretch out his hand and he was healed, but as a result, Jesus was stretched out over a cross. It was free for this man to get a new hand, but it cost Jesus everything. And it doesn't seem fair, really. It doesn't seem worth it. The death of the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, for some man's hand, for some paralytic's legs, for some dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. It's actually way deeper than that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him 
to be sin who knew no sin, that we would become in him the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't die for our hand or our legs. He died for something way more than that. He died for our sin. Jesus died so we can find our righteousness in him and not in religion. Our rest in him, our hope in him, our life in him. What Jesus did here, he healed the man and it would end up in his own demise. But by doing that, he was dying to set people free. And so it says in Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What Jesus gives is way more than just relaxation. He gives you this deep rest of your soul where you stop striving religiously to meet God and you get to see God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would deliver us from religion. You would save us, God. We need your help. And I pray for people that we would seriously in this time find rest. That these next couple minutes, we would be more at rest in Jesus than we've been in eight hours of REM sleep. That you would bring rest to our souls, God. I pray that people would put their faith in you, that have not put their faith in you and their trust in you, and follow you like this man with his hand. And I ask God that you would personally call people. That you would call people to follow you. Thank you that our sins can be washed away. That you set our hearts free. That we don't have to be bound up anymore. That you bring restoration to our souls, God. Thank you that you have compassion, that you know us, that you love us. I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.